Good morning, Gospel City. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. My name is Mitch Helmkamp, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors around here. And I, I just want to extend my welcome uh, to the grandparents and the extended family who came uh, from out of town, or maybe you're just a guest, uh, to see these little cute babies be dedicated. And uh, in the spirit of extended family, the sermon text for today covers two genealogies. So I'm thankful for how that worked out. So Moses records for us seven generations from the line of Cain, Adam and Eve's oldest or older son, and then ten generations from the line of Seth, Adam and Eve's younger son. And if you've been with us, you know that this is a little bit of a, a change of pace. And up to this point in Genesis, Moses has been recording for us some of the most important events in the history of the world, like the creation of the world and the creation of man and woman in the image of God, the creation of marriage. He's recorded for us uh, the first sin, the first gospel, the first worship service, the first murder. All these things are worldview-shaping events. They answer some of the most important questions you could possibly ask, like, who is God, and, and what is he like, and who am I, and why do I exist, and why is the world full of so much sin and brokenness, and is there any hope? So before we dive in, we need to ask ourselves this question. Why does Moses go from recording these worldview-shaping events to a bunch of names that we can barely pronounce? And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, we considered the importance of Genesis 3.15. So Genesis 3.15, God says in his judgment upon the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So as we saw, this, this is the first gospel. This is a messianic promise, as theologians call it. This verse shapes the plotline of the entire Bible. Because ever since the fall, ever since God pronounced this judgment in the form of the first gospel, the world has been waiting for this promised seed of the woman. The Messiah who will come and crush the serpent and reverse the curse of sin and death. And up until this point of the story, we, we know that the Messiah is going to be human and that he's going to be born of a woman. And so this is why Moses inserts 40 verses worth of genealogies into the narrative. Because the most important question you could ask is, who is the seed of the woman? And as we said two weeks ago, that's how we should be reading the Bible. We should be asking in the Old Testament, we should be wondering, who is the promised seed of the woman? And this genealogy is helping to develop the answer to this question. So this genealogy is important because Jesus is important. And so look down at Genesis, we're going to start in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 17. And like I said, this covers two genealogies. We're going to start with Cain's. And we're going to go through Seth, through the end of chapter 5. And so, this is a long portion of scripture, so stay with me. I think we should all marvel that we're going to just sit under the reading of God's word. Hundreds of people are gathered here to hear the word of the Lord. This is the main event. Starting in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son. Enoch. To Enoch 
to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujiel, and Mehujiel fathered Methuselah, or Methushiel, and Methushiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, and the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, and he was the forger of instruments of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Starting in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Starting in chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man. And when they were created, when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. And after his image, and named him Seth. And the days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 850 years, or 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mehael. And Kenan lived after he fathered Mehael 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And when Mehael had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. And can I just pause and get an amen for Jared's mom? I mean, I, this, I wish this genealogy was full of, like, Jims and Joes, but I'll take Jared. Jared's pretty good. So when, uh, when Mahal had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahal had lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahal were 895 years, and he died. And when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. And Jared lived after he had fathered Enoch 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. But when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, and Enoch walked with God. And after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, and um, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he had fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered his son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from the work from which the painful toil of our hands and Lamech lived, and he, after he fathered Noah, 595 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Dear Father, we thank you for speaking to us. Lord, we thank you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Lord, we thank you that all scripture is profitable, that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, proof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that through this message, Lord, you would teach us and that you would reprove us, that you would correct us, and that you would train us, and that from this genealogy, we would be men and women equipped for every good work. And Lord, that you would uh, convict us, that you would challenge us. Lord, we thank you that this is a church that preaches your word verse by verse, and Lord, we are ready to feast on your word from this genealogy today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, so before we, as we dive in and start studying these genealogies, I want to begin by asking a couple of questions. The first question is, why are there two genealogies instead of one? I mean, it, it's obvious why Seth's line is important, because from Seth comes Noah, and from Noah comes Abraham, and from Abraham comes Israel, and all, you know, even Jesus. So Seth's line is the messianic line. And yet, why does Cain's line matter? I mean, no one important descends from Cain, so why does Moses include it? Well, if you go back to Genesis 3.15, it says, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And so notice this verse refers to two families, not one. There's the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, the offspring of the serpent is not talking about literal snakes. This is a family of, real, of physical people who align with the serpent. They are serpent-like and yet they uh, rebel against God and align with the devil. And so according to this verse, the serpent's family, the, the people who rebel against God, are also going to rebel against God's people, and there's going to be this constant conflict, this constant enmity between these two families, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And so this, this is why Moses includes the two genealogies, because one, one family represents the offspring of the serpent, and the other family represents the offspring of the woman, as we'll see. And both are relevant to the story of the Bible and really to all the history of the world. The next question I think we need to consider is why do the genealogies have so much in common? Why do they have so many parallels? Did you hear any of the parallels when we were reading? I mean, both genealogies include a man named Lamech. Both include a man named Enoch. Both genealogies highlight the seventh generation. So in Cain's genealogy, he just, this person fathered this person, and this person fathered this person, and this person fathered this person. And yet, if you look at 419, Moses pauses and highlights the seventh generation. He gives a lot of details, like who Lamech, the name of Lamech's wives and his kids and things that his kids invented. The same is true in Seth's line. Moses doesn't get many details of their lives, just... This person followed this person, this is how many years he lived, and then he died. But chapter 5, verse 21, again, he highlights the seventh generation. And he gives details on Enoch's, Enoch's life, that Enoch walked with God, and that all of a sudden he was walking with God, and then one day God took him. And we'll talk more about that later, but the point is that Moses highlights the seventh generation in both genealogies. And the parallels continue. Both genealogies include one speech, and both speeches are given by a na man named Lamech. So Lamech in Cain's genealogy gives a speech about uh, boasting about killing a man, and Lamech in uh, Seth's genealogy gives a speech about why he's naming his son Noah. 
Uh, both genealogies only give the name of one offspring, except for they both end by giving the name of three offspring. And so the, the, the parallels continue, but the question is why? Why does Moses include so many parallels in these two genealogies? And here's why. I think that the similarities invite the reader to compare the genealogies. I mean, clearly they're meant to be read side by side. And yet, as we compare them, I think Moses put the, the, the parallels in there so that we compare them. And once we compare them, what we realize is that they're really drastically different. Because the reality is, these, these two families could not be more different. One family is godless, and the other family is godly. One family has made this world their home. The other family is sojourners in this world, just longing for the next world. One family puts their hope in their own creative ingenuity. The other family has put their hope in God's Messiah. And so, for the rest of our time together, we're going we're gonna to do what Moses wants us to do. We're going to compare and contrast these two families. And we're going to identify some defining characteristics or some family traits, if you will. So we're going to look at four defining family traits. And as we do, I, I want you to be listening with this question in mind. Which family do I resemble? Which family do I resemble? So these, these two families are not just two random families from a long time ago. These two families represent two, the two spiritual families of the world. Literally every single person who has ever lived has belonged to one of these two families. Either the family of the serpent or the family of the woman. And in God's providence, we had a, a bunch of cute sermon illustrations up on the stage earlier. Because you can tell, I mean, you look at some of those babies and, and they resemble their parents in the shape of their, their mouths and their noses and their eyes or their hair. And you can tell who belongs to who. And they, they resemble their parents. Some of them resemble their grandparents. And so that's true of our physical families. We have a physical resemblance of our physical family. And the, the same is true of our spiritual families. There is a spiritual resemblance. You can spiritually resemble your spiritual family. So as we go through, be asking yourself, which family does my spiritual life resemble? So if you're ready, we're going to look at number one. If you're ready, say ready. All right, let's dive in. One family has God as their father. The other family, the devil. So as we said, Genesis 3.15 talks about the offspring of the serpent. And Genesis 4 makes it clear that Cain is one of the offspring of the serpent. So in Genesis 3, God uses this phrase to the serpent. He says, cursed are you. And then in the next chapter, chapter 4, God uses that same phrase to Cain. Cursed are you. And so this is a, a literary technique from Moses that we read this and we're, we're supposed to see that the serpent and, the, and Cain are related, that, that Kern, Cain is a, a descendant of the serpent, he's the offspring of the serpent. And this is what Moses is intending us to read, and this is how the Apostle John interprets it. So as we saw a couple weeks ago, 1 John 3, John says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then he concludes, therefore, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, who was a seed of the serpent, and murdered his brother. So John is helping us make it explicitly clear that Cain is one of the offspring of the serpent. And Jesus adds to this when he's talking to the Pharisees who want to kill him in John 8. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, because he was a murderer from the beginning. 
So the devil has a family. The Bible helps us see. The devil has a family, and it's a family of murderers. Satan, Cain, the Pharisees, they're all murderers, like father, like son. And here's why this is important for the genealogy. Look at chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech, from the line of Cain, boasts, I have killed a man. So Lamech is a murderer, just like his great-grandpa Cain, and just like his father, the devil. Moses is showing us that Cain's family is the seed of the serpent. This is the devil's family, a family of murderers. And Moses goes on to show that Seth's family is very different. Seth's family has God as their father. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, it goes like this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. So there's, there's two things I want you to see from this verse. Number one, God creates man in his likeness. And then, number two, God names man. And with those two things in mind, listen to the next verse, verse 3. It says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So, Adam has a son in his likeness, and then Adam names him. Adam names him Seth. The two parallel. And so Moses, this is, the point is that Moses is showing that Adam is not the patriarch of this family. That God is. One commentator put it this way, the author has gone to great lengths to depict God as the patriarch. Not only is Adam the father of Seth and Seth the father of Enosh, but God is the father of them all. And so, Gospel City, here's why this is important to us. Because we live in a culture that believes that everyone is children of God. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't count how many times I've heard people say, we're all children of God. Can we just get along? We assume that just for being human, that's a synonymous with saying that you're a child of God. And yet that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the world has two spiritual families, not one. There's the family of the serpent and the family of the devil. There's people who have God as their father and then people who have the devil as their father. And so if you're here today, don't just assume that just because you're human, you're a member of the family of God. Or just because you go to church and you pray to prayer, don't just assume that because you're human, you are a child of God. And if you are an adopted child of God, then don't let the world water that phrase down for you so that you take it for granted. Not everyone is a child of God, and yet being a child of God is the greatest privilege in the world. And John says it in that same chapter in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called his children. And so we are. J.I. Packer says, you want to know how much someone understands what it means to be a Christian? Figure out how much they make of being a child of God. Having Christ as their brother and God as their father. I mean, having God as your father, being an adopted child of God, is the greatest privilege in the world. So don't let the world water that phrase down to make you think that it's just synonymous with being a human. Not everyone is a child of God. So the world has two spiritual families. And this is why Moses has given us two genealogies. So we can know the difference. So we need to know who's who. So with that in mind, let's look at the second defining family trait. One family tries to make a name for themselves. The other family makes much of the name of the Lord. So look back at chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so, 
Notice how Cain builds a city, and then he names it after his son. And so this is intentional. This is about Cain's legacy, his, his glory, the, making much of the family name. I mean, the reason you name a city after your own family is so that the, the name of your family lives on long, lo, much longer than you live. As long as the city lives, as, as long as that name of that city survives, your name survives. So this is about Cain's legacy. And George Washington has been dead for hundreds of years, and yet one of the main ways his name and fame and legacy lives on is the capital of the United States is named after him. And so that's what Cain is attempting to do. He wants the, the name of his family to live on. He's trying to make much of his family name. And in stark contrast to this, look down at the last verse of chapter 4, verse 26. Cain's genealogy ends in verse 24, and so this is, this is talking about Seth's family. And it says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So that phrase, to call upon the name of the Lord, is, is translated in other passages as um, proclaim the name of the Lord. And ironically, I didn't even make a connection. It's, it's translated that way in the passage that we read to my son. So to proclaim the name of the Lord. So this is about worship. This is about proclaiming the fame and the glory of the name of Yahweh. And this is, this is really a defining characteristic of God's family throughout history. God's family does not live for the, the fame and the name of their own name. God's family lives to make much of the name of the Lord our God and his name alone. So look, Psalm 30 says, Sing to the Lord, you his faithful ones, and praise his holy name. Psalm 96 says, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Psalm 148 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for his name alone is to be exalted. If you consider the New Testament, Jesus tells, teaches the disciples to pray then like this. Our Father, I, I need you to really help me make much of my name. That's not what he says. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You live for his name. Your kingdom come, not mine. Jesus summarizes Paul's mission, the greatest missionary, the greatest pastor, the greatest theologian in the history of the world. He summarizes his, his mission as he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Paul's life was about Jesus. And, Jesus, and Paul got the message because he summarizes his own mission in Romans 1 that he's uh, called and set apart and a slave of Christ bringing about the obedience of faith. Why? For the sake of the name among all nations. And Paul reveals in Philippians 2 that God rose Jesus from the dead so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. So the Bible is clear from beginning to end that the people of God live to make much of the name of God. And yet our world is full of people trying to make a name for themselves. When you just go on social media like Instagram or TikTok, I mean, those people, people are trying to make a name for themselves. People go to school for their own glory, their own name. They try to build a career for their own glory. They parent even for their own glory that they might be made much of because of how their, ki their kids are, how good their kids are at sports or academics. They pursue hobbies for their own glory. They retire to the American dream for their own glory. We live in a nation, in a culture, in a world full of people living for their own name. As if this world is about them. As if they're the main character. There's only one main character. And it's not any of us. So Gospel City, whose name are you living for? When you go to work, are you primarily focused on making much of God's name? Is that your mission? 
Or are you there to make much of your own name? And when you go to school, do you desire praise from your peers? Is that, is that what's primarily on your mind and heart in determining your actions? Or are you, at all costs, desiring that your peers praise the Lord, even at the cost of your own praise? And when you serve in ministry, whose glory are you seeking? I mean, check your heart. Are you really serving for the glory of God and his glory alone? Or, or do you want some of the credit as well and you want to share the glory? And when you think about your goals in life, what you ask for, what you work for, what you save your money for, what you daydream about, whose glory is at the center of it all? Is your life about making much of the name of your name or the name of the Lord our God? So the children of the devil live to make much of their own names. They're glory thieves. But the children of our God live to make much of the name of our God, Yahweh. So number three, third family trait. One family pursues paradise apart from God, and the other family defines paradise as being in the presence of God. So look down at Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. So after Cain killed Abel, God punished him, and this this is what it says. It says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so we, we should read this in like flashing red. Like, no, Cain, this is, and this is tragic because God is the source of life. He's the creator, the provider, the protector. From in his presence is the fullness of joy. Cain should be pursuing God. He should be repenting and pursuing the Lord, not going away from him. It says Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. I mean, that, that is one of the most tragic verses in all the Bible. And it gets worse. It doesn't, doesn't say that Cain went away and he realized this is terrible and comes right back. Verse 17 says that he built a city. <laughs> so, in other words, he went away from the presence of the Lord and he camped out there. He says, I'm staying here. And in verse 21 and 22, it says Cain's descendants invent music and tools and weapons. So Cain's descendants create for themselves a city with a culture. I mean, they're, they're really the founders of civilization. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that cities and, and um, technology and, and culture is all evil in themselves, but in the, the context of Genesis 4, everything about Cain's line is in the negative context. And so in the context of Genesis 4, Cain is building this city away from the presence of the Lord. So Cain's... Cain's family is attempting to um, build a, a paradise. They're trying to build what they lost in Eden, except for without God. So this is a godless Eden. As one commentator put it, the city is an attempt to recreate Eden without God. Cain's family wants the pleasures of life without the creator of those pleasures. They want to have paradise on earth, to have heaven on earth, without the one that makes heaven heaven. And in stark contrast to this, consider Enoch from Seth's family. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 22, Enoch walked with God, it says, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So this is, this is amazing. This is beautiful. This verse mentions twice that Enoch walked with God. So you have Cain who walked away from the Lord and built a city, and you have, God, you have Enoch who walked with God, and he didn't just walk with him for a time, he walked with him for 300 years. Well, that's a long walk. 
Enoch was so satisfied with the glorious presence of God that he, he walked with him for 300 years. Enoch didn't try to create a, a godless paradise. He realized that the definition of paradise is being in the presence of the Lord. And this is really a defining characteristic of God's family. God's people pursue God's presence above all else because they realize that's what we're created for. And think about Moses in Exodus 33. God says, Moses, you can take these people up to the promised land, but I'm not going with you because they're so stiff-necked and rebellious, I would consume them on the way. And Moses doesn't say, well, you know, the promised land is better than the wilderness. Okay, I guess I'll take it. And he says, no, God, we're, we're not going without you. He'd, he'd rather be in the wilderness, in a desert, with the presence of the Lord than go to the promised land flowing of mil- with milk and honey without the Lord. Moses knew that it's better to be in the wilderness with God than in paradise without him. And of all people, Moses would know. Think about David who said in Psalm 27, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. When David was a king, David had everything the world could offer him. And he says, there's really only one thing I want. There's only one thing I desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 84 adds that for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And that is not poetic hyperbole. And according to Revelation 22, the hope of heaven can be summed up in these words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What was lost in Eden will be restored, and we will dwell with God and walk with him for all of eternity. And it won't be, a, it won't be recreated in man's way, where there's this paradise that's a godless paradise. What makes paradise paradise is being with God. What makes heaven heaven is being with God. And so, Gospel City, what paradise are you pursuing? Because the reality is, we're all pursuing paradise. We are hardwired. We are created to desire to live in with um, pleasures. We are desired to want to live in the Garden of Eden. We were not created to live in this world that is broken and fallen. So we're all like Cain's family, trying to get back there. And yet, there's only one way to get back there. So are you pursuing paradise through the American dream, through nice cars, through, through a nice home, through a nice retirement, through nice vacations? You're trying to create this mini Eden for yourself in this life? And perhaps you're pursuing paradise through social media, through TV, through, through video games. You realize that this world is not paradise. And yet, so you want to enter a virtual world, a fake world, and create a fake paradise for yourself. Or are you pursuing paradise in the only place that it can be found? In the presence of the Lord. I mean, do you daily desire to commune with him through the word and through prayer? Can you say with the psalmist, honestly, that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore? One thing do I seek, only one thing do I ask, you say with David, that I may dwell in your presence. If someone were to give you a one-sentence summary of your life, would it be, Mitch walked with God? Or so-and-so walked with God. I mean, Gospel City, may we be a people where it is said of us, we walked with God. Those people, there's something different about them because they walk with God. They do not pursue the pleasures of this world. They recognize that the pleasures are at the right hand of the Father. And the serpent's family pursues paradise apart from God. But as God's people, we recognize that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we define paradise as being in the presence of God. that brings us to our fourth family trait. This is the last one we'll look at. One family despises God's word. The other family hopes in God's word. So, one family despises God's word and the other family hopes in God's word. 
If you remember from last week, uh, Cain was angered by God's assessment of his offering. And so then he responds by killing his image-bearing brother. And then God gives him really a gracious punishment, and yet Cain whines about it. And if you notice in verse, chapter 4, verse 12, part of God's punishment was to make Cain a wanderer. He says, you'll be a wanderer all the days of your life. And so what does Cain do? Verse 17 says he built a city. <laughs> Building a city is the opposite of being a wanderer. And so the context would suggest that Cain built this city in defiance to the word of God. God says, uh, part of your punishment is you're going to be a wanderer. And so Cain responds, says, no, I'm not. And he builds a city. Cain's descendant Lamech despises the word of God as well. God instituted the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. And yet, in an act of rebellion, he takes for himself two wives. If you look at verse 19 in chapter 4, that word took, Lamech took two wives. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his image bearers, and yet to reverse that in defiance to the word of God, in defiance to that creation mandate, Lamech kills an image bearer and then boasts about it. So clearly the family of the serpent despises the word of God. They reject the word of God. They rebel against the word of God. And is it any wonder because their father is the, is the devil, the father of lies, the hater of truth, the one who said from the beginning, did God actually say and has been saying ever since? So like father, like son, the family of the serpent despises the word of God. And in contrast, the family of God doesn't despise the word of God. We put our hope in it. We cherish it. We know it and love it and obey it. So remember Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel. It it promises that an offspring of the woman is going to come and and reverse the curse and crush uh, the serpent. And so look, with that in mind, look at chapter 4, verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. So notice the language. This is intentionally echoing Genesis 3.15. This is a verse about the woman and her offspring. (laughs) So Eve's response to the birth of Seth reveals that she is hoping that her child is the promised seed of the woman. She's putting her hope in God's word. And so she had hoped that Abel would be the offspring the promised offspring, and yet Cain killed him, so he's clearly not the promised Messiah, and Cain's clearly not the promised Messiah either, because he killed his other brother, and he's the seed of the serpent. And yet, even though through all that tragedy, Eve is still putting her hope in the word of God, and as her son is born, she's like, could this be the promised offspring? Has God appointed for me this one? And so, the messianic hope is how the genealogy begins, and it's also how it ends. Look at chapter 5, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, it says he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. All right, so remember Genesis 3 again. God's judgment on sin led him to curse the ground. And he said to Adam, He increased the pain and the toil from which they will eat. And yet he promised one day that an offspring would come and and would reverse the curse. In other words, that the promised Messiah would come and bring relief from the curse. And so if you look back at Genesis 5, Noah's dad is clearly hoping in the word of God from Genesis 3. 
He is hoping that Noah is the promised offspring of the woman. Because the ground is cursed, there's full of pain, the, the work is painful and toilsome, and yet Lamech believes that a promised Savior will come and bring relief. And if you think about it, Lamech, who named Noah, would have, would have, Noah would have been born uh, a long time after God first pronounced that first gospel in Genesis 3. If you do the math, God created Adam based on how long he lived, uh, 1,056 years before Noah was born. So this means that for a 1,000 years and for 10 generations, this family passed on the word of God. This family put their hope in the messianic promise so much that they taught it to their children and their children's children and their children's children's children down to the 10th generation. And it wasn't just a, oh, by the way, God said this. We don't know if we believe it. I mean, you think about how much telephone could happen throughout a thousand years and ten generations, how much something could get twisted or misunderstood, and yet Lamech clearly understands the promise of the curse, that that someone is going to come and crush the serpent and reverse the curse of sin on the world. And so they loved, this family loved and cherished the word so much that they passed it down ten generations, so much so that the tenth generation named their kid after it. This family has put their hope in the word of God. And yet here is the best part. Moses structures the entire genealogy in order to encourage this hope in God's word, this messianic hope. So notice how much Moses emphasizes death throughout chapter 5. And if you look at chapter 4, he doesn't, he just says this person fathered this person, this person fathered this person, and the implication is that person eventually died. And then even in this genealogy, he, he says this person, and they died, and they died, and they died. He says it eight times, and this person died. And Moses also lists how many years they, the person lived, and so that's redundant, because if you live 907 years, the implication is you died on the 907th year. And yet Moses, to make a point, says this person lived this long, and then he died, and he died, and he died. And the reason why he does that, he's being redundant to make the point that Enoch didn't die. Enoch is the exception. Now, this is amazing. Enoch lived in a sin-cursed world, because Genesis 5 comes after Genesis 3. God's punishment to Adam was that you will surely die, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And every person who's ever lived has died because the wages of sin is death, except Enoch. So this, I mean, this is amazing, and this is not a random miracle. This is not, well, you know what, the Bible has some weird stuff, some pretty amazing stuff, I guess I'll believe it and then move on. Like This is meant to be a ray of shining hope that the curse can be overcome. That death is not inevitable. That even in a sin-cursed world, we can have fellowship with God. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the presence of God. They're kicked out of the the Garden of Eden. And yet Enoch walked with God. And he said, you will surely die for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And yet Enoch didn't die. And so this is hope. This is helping us see that fellowship with God is still possible even in a sin-cursed world. And that eternal life with God is even possible in a sin-cursed world. This is helping us see that the curse can be overcome. And the reason it can be overcome is because of the Messiah promised in Genesis 3.15 who is coming to reverse the curse of sin and death. And so Moses begins the genealogy with this messianic hope. He ends the genealogy with this messianic hope. And he structures the entire genealogy so that throughout we can have this messianic hope. Because this family is a family who is built on the word of God. And they have put their hope in Genesis 3.15. And so Gospel City, is your life built on this type of hope? 
I mean, is, is your entire life structured around this hope in the Word of God? Do you know the Word of God and obey the Word of God and put your hope in it? Do you study the Word of God so that you can pass it on to your kids and your grandkids and your grandkids' grandkids? I mean, do you, do you build your life on these promises so that when you watch the news and it's full of all this terror and, and evil and sin and suffering, your, your response is is sadness and, and is trembling, and yet ultimately your response is just as, as these people who lived in a very broken world is so broken that in the next generation God sends a flood to wipe them all out, and yet their hope is that the Messiah would come, and we live in a broken world, and our hope is that the Messiah will come again. Or is your life more like Cain's? You're indifferent to the word of God, and you ignore it and disobey it and, and have a, a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. And there's two families in the world. And one of the defining characteristics, one of the best ways to, res- their, the, their spiritual resemblance, where it is one of the loudest and clearest, is their response to the word of God. And so as we close, I want, I want to end with this question that I asked at the beginning. Which family do you resemble? Which, which family does your spiritual life resemble? And perhaps you're here today and, and you've, you've prayed a prayer and, and you go to church, and you've maybe even been baptized, and, and you think, well, you assume, I, I, I'm, I believe, I believe in God, I'm a Christian. And yet you look at the fruit of your spiritual life, and it actually looks a lot like the serpent's family. You don't live for your glory, you don't live, or you don't live for the glory of God, you, you live for the fame of your own name. And you don't pursue the presence of God, you pursue the pleasures of this world apart from God. You don't hope in God's word. You barely read the word. Well, let me encourage you. Ephesians 2 reveals that actually every single person who has ever lived was born into the family of the serpent. No one is born into the family of God by physical birth. Paul says in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience the sons of the serpent, among whom we all once lived. We're all born dead. We're all born disobedient children of wrath. We're all born following the prince of the power of the air. No one is born into the, God, into the family of God through physical birth, which is why Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again to a spiritual birth, into the spiritual family of God. The good news is that God sent his son to die for dead, disobedient children of the serpent. So that whoever repents of their sin and calls upon the name of the Lord and, and repents, saying, Lord, I've lived for my own glory. Lord, I, I th- I've thought that my life is all about me. Lord, I have pursued pleasures of this world apart from you. I have ignored your word. I have despised your word. And yet, Lord, I trust that Christ is this promised Messiah who has come to crush the curse and overcome sin and death. I believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the only way to the Father and that I am not worthy of being called your child and yet Christ is and through faith in him I can be adopted from the family of the serpent into the family of God. And for the rest of us who are blood-bought children of God, let us strive every day to put off our, the baggage of our old family. Let us put off the old and put on the new. For we're children of God, so let's act like it. Or let us, this week, let us stop living for the fame of our own name. Let us repent of that. And let us live for the name of the fame of the Lord our God, the only name who is worthy of praise. Let us stop pursuing the pleasures of this world. Instead, let us walk with God, for in his presence is the fullness of joy. Lord, Lord we believe it. Help our unbelief. 
And let us build our life on the word of God. That never fails. For the word said that a Messiah would come. And Seth's family put their hope in this. And that Messiah's name is Jesus. And the word says that the Messiah is going to come again. And as Gospel City, we believe that he will. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, through your word we can behold your glory. Lord, we thank you that as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life and that it is they that bear witness about me for Moses wrote about me. And so Lord, we thank you that we can read Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 and we can see that Moses did indeed write about your son. And Lord, we believe that he is the promised Messiah. We believe that he is the serpent slayer. We believe that he has come to reverse the curse of sin and death. And we believe that because he rose from the dead, that that is a certain fact that death can be overcome and that sin has been paid in full. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. I pray that you would help us to stop living for the fame of our own name and live for the fame of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to stop pursuing the pleasures of this world, this world that is fading, this world that's dying. Help us to live for the pleasures of, of the next world in your presence. Lord, help us to pursue you above all else. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who is not an adopted family, or not, not a family member, not a child of God, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to convict their heart, open their eyes, help them see that they need a savior. And Lord, I pray that you'd save people through this genealogy. Amen.